continuing in our series on becoming his church, and, and I, I think it's important sometimes for us to kind of take a little step back, um, papers fall on the ground, take a step back, kind of move forward to kind of see like what's been happening here in this story. If you go all the way back to, to chapter one, you know, the, the, the 120 or so, like they're, they're you know, the, life couldn't be better. If you remember, just, just a month earlier, life couldn't have been worse. Jesus had been crucified. They saw him. But now Jesus was back. He'd resurrected and he's there and he's walking among them and they're hanging out with him and he's teaching them things. And it looks like, all right, some awesome things are going to happen. And then chapter one comes along and Jesus leaves. He's gone. And there's that time where he says, okay, now you're going to wait. And so from that time when Jesus leaves until the beginning of chapter 2 and the Holy Spirit comes, there's that, there's that time where they wait. So they've gone from the highs, you know, from the lows to the highs back to the kind of the lows again, but they're waiting. And then the Holy Spirit comes. And, and all of a sudden, everything changes all over again. The, the gospel goes out. Thousands respond. They go from this small group of just 120 to now there's people and, and they don't all speak the same language. They're not all from the same culture. They're coming from, the, this, these are Jewish people that had come from all over the empire. And, and as you can imagine with rapid growth, there's, there's all these other things that are happening you know, there's internal struggles as you kind of the Hellenized Jews and the Hebraist Jews, now that they're Christians, they're, they're figuring out how to get along with each other because prior to that, they didn't get along at all and they didn't care. Then there's the persecution coming from the outside. And at first, it's the religious leaders, but eventually, it's not just the religious leaders, it's others Others who want to silence the Christians. Others who start to see this is this, this threat. And so much so that they, again, go through the, what seems like the low of seeing Stephen stoned to death. Persecution comes on the church. The church scatters. But as we've been talking about for the past month or two, God's doing a lot of things. And what we don't understand always is that they don't know all that God is doing. They don't know that God has this, this crazy plan to take the persecutor of the church, the, one of the most zealous persecutors of the church, and instead of just wiping him out or putting him on the side, God has a plan to encounter him on his way to persecution, and then that man is going to become his main missionary, God's main missionary to take the gospel to everywhere in the empire that had not yet been reached. They don't know that. They don't know that at the same time some of this is happening, that, that Peter is, is having this vision, and this vision is, is this Understanding like, oh, the gospel doesn't just go to the Jewish people, it goes to the Gentiles. They don't know what's happening with, with Philip. 
They don't know that, that Philip has, has, has evangelized this Ethiopian eunuch and then he's gone to the Samaritans. But we all know it because we can read it and it doesn't take us very long to read it. But all that they know is to be faithful. And we're going to return to the story of these other people that we don't really have very many names for. And it's, it's, it's the, the Christians in Jerusalem that when Stephen was, was killed and they scattered, it tells us that wherever they went, they were sharing the gospel. They weren't just running scared. They were sharing the gospel. And now we come back to that in chapter 11. God wasn't just doing incredible things through Peter. He wasn't just doing incredible things through Saul, who would then take on his name Paul later. He's not just working through Philip and the other apostles. No. He's working through these people that we don't even know, and so much has happened. So in Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30, we read this. It says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So while all these other things are happening with all of the big names, God's been working. He's been working through all of these other people that we, we don't know. We haven't heard about them. And these are the only ones that are mentioned here. We know that even when Barnabas and Saul go on their missionary journeys, they're not always going into missionary journeys into new cities where there's no Christians. Christianity has been spreading, and it's been spreading in so many different ways. It's not just what's happening in one place at one time. And what we see here is these persecuted Christians, it says they went to Phoenicia, and if you, know, if you think like, it's probably backwards, but to me it's correct. The Mediterranean Sea is here, okay? And then you think this is like kind of where Palestine is. So Phoenicia, if Jerusalem's down here, Phoenicia's kind of up this way. And then when it says Cyprus, Cyprus is actually an island, okay? It's, it's in the Mediterranean. So it's, it's over this way. 
it tells us this other guy was from Cyrene. Now, we don't know that he's gone back to Cyrene or he's coming from Cyrene, but Cyrene is all the way down here on the other side of the Mediterranean in North Africa. And so the gospel is, is just from this little mention has been spreading. We've already seen where it's been spreading in Samaria and other places like that. But there's this movement that's taking place. And, and I just want to just tell you here, this isn't like one of the points of the sermon. I, I just want to tell you, remind you, that sometimes we can get so caught up in our own situation. We can get so caught up in what we're doing. And if it's not going well, we can sometimes think like, you know, where's God? What's he doing? Where's his power? And I have to remind people of this. Because a lot of people think the West, the West, and I'm talking about Western Europe and, you know, North America, that the West is where Christianity is. Get this number in your head. 75% of Christians do not live in the West. Do the math. We're the minority. If we look around and think like, oh, you know, the world is just, you know, going to hell because, you know, America is failing and not Christian. God has more things going on than America. He's got more things going on than the West. He's got more things going on than Wiley Baptist Church. It doesn't mean that we're not faithful. It doesn't mean that, that we don't continue on. But it's this common thing that, that we face in, 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 in just in the world in general. And it plagues Christians, which is weird. I get it when non-Christians are like this, but when Christians are like this, where we do not recognize God at work. We don't recognize God at work. Today, um, if you go on our website today, you're going to see this link that you've never seen before. It's to a video that is actually, usually there's a there's this kind of international prayer conference that takes place. And I was asked to speak at it this year, but it's not, they're not, we're not going somewhere and meeting in one place. Instead, they just videotaped all the pieces. And so it's there and you can watch it, even if you can't watch it when it starts at 2 p.m. You can watch it anytime. It'll be on there for a while. But when I was asked to speak, I was, you know, I was kind of keenly aware that that what is going on here, what's going on in, in this ministry, at this church, in Hawaii, it's not the same as some of these people that are on this program with me. You know, one of them is ministering to people in the Ukraine. I mean, who am I to give a message about faithfulness to some to Christians who are ministering in a war-ravaged country? Who am I to talk about strength to those who are in, in places that are ravaged by famine? 
I'm aware. I'm aware that God is at work in ways that I don't know and I cannot see. I cannot despair just because of that. And one of my messages, my main message to them was this. Your faithfulness. It's the same message Paul wrote in some of his letters. Your faithfulness, Thessalonians, your faithfulness in persecution is an encouragement to all the rest of us. Your ability to grow in your faith, not fall apart when persecution comes, your ability to grow in your love to one another and not turn against each other when persecution comes. It's a witness. It's a challenge. But most people, even Christians, they cannot recognize when God's at work. This survey comes out. It's always interesting to me when these surveys come out. And they said 81% of Americans still believe in God. Well, not sure who they mean by God, but some type of higher being. 81%. Still pretty high. But do they recognize when God's at work? Do they even think God's at work? Do they think God only works when he does something kind of like big spectacular thing? That's God. That's God, when, when some incredible healing or when some incredible victory or when he writes something across the sky, that's the only way God's at work. All the rest of the time, it's just us. We, we get kind of bored when God is just keeping the universe together. Like, come on God, do something better. You know, do something more spectacular than, than keeping all of existence happening. We miss it. We get bored by the routine. We get bored when, when God brings someone into our lives at exactly the moment we need that person. We get bored when, when it's just that faithful Bible study teacher that's, that's consistently taught us over all the years, and we don't recognize that's God at work. We get bored when that parent or grandparent has been praying for us all the time, every day. That's not God at work. That's just people that love me. We miss it. Or worse, we take credit for it. We take credit. Or we give credit to other human beings, but we don't recognize God at work. One of the main messages of the book of Acts is that this is the work of God. Again and again, it references the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doing things, leading things. And we're being told that's what happened, but what it looks like to other people is not the Holy Spirit coming down and saying, hi, I'm going to tell you what you need to do. Well, the Holy Spirit may have a not so deep a voice. Um, no. It's the Holy Spirit going to Cornelius. Holy Spirit going to Peter. 
the Holy Spirit leading Philip. But it's still Philip going and talking. It's still Peter going and talking. It's still Paul going and doing these things. It's still these people that we don't even know going wherever they go and sharing the gospel. And so, we don't recognize God at work, and that can be hugely problematic. It can discourage us. We, especially when, when, when we're facing challenges, when things aren't going as well, when it seems like, you know, we're losing. But it can also cause this false pride, which leads to a false gospel. That Christianity is really about your best efforts to do what Jesus says. Make no mistake that the Bible says, give your best efforts to do what Jesus says. But also don't miss this part of it. Because the Bible also says, on your own, you will fail. Give your best efforts, but on your own, you will fail. If you are going to really do what Jesus wants us to do, what Jesus has commanded us to do, if you're going to do it in the way that Jesus commands it, then we realize we cannot do it on our own. We can only do it by his spirit, by his power. And so when we look at this this, this story and we see that these Christians that have gone, that even though they've gone and they've had success in other places, they want to go to Antioch. And why Antioch? Well, this, there's two Antiochs mentioned in the Bible, and this particular one is, is the third largest city in the Roman Empire. They're going to, to these, these major cities. Why? Well, it's not just because that's where most of the people are. It's one of the reasons. But one thing that, that has been true throughout you know, human civilization is that if you want to influence cultures, you influence cities. Culture flows from the cities. You hardly ever, if ever, I can't think of a single instance where culture flows from the villages to the cities. It always goes in the other direction. And so they go to the cities. And they're here in Antioch. And it says something here. It says, they spoke to the Hellenists also. Oftentimes in Acts, when it uses the word Hellenists, it's referring to Jewish people who are culturally Hellenists. But we can tell from this context, that's not what Luke means here. Luke means these men from Cyprus and Cyrene are going to talk to Gentiles. Let me just tell you this. For Peter to share with one Gentile, it took a vision that had to be repeated three times. These guys, they just understand the gospel, see the need, and just go. They don't need to be convinced. There's nothing in here that says, that, that they would have, you know, that, that they needed God to come in and, and kind of 
going to get, get, get them over their prejudices, get them over their biases, get them over from their kind of lack of proper interpretation of what Jesus had told them. It's funny. The great leader Peter, who we look to as this great man of faith, needed a vision repeated three times. And these dudes don't even know their name. They don't know their names and they're awesome. They're able to do what took a vision to get Peter to do. And they go. And so this ministry to the Gentiles, God's got several pieces going. We know Philip had already evangelized the Ethiopian eunuch who we presume goes down to Ethiopia and continues in his faith. We, we know that God had, had raised up Saul, had taken this persecutor of the church and, and now turned him into one of the strongest advocates of the church and from the very beginning says, you will be the missionary to the Gentiles. But we haven't heard from him for a while. For a while. In fact, it's been about 10 years. And then you have Peter and what he's gone, done to go to Cornelius. And Cornelius and his household and many of his friends, all Gentiles becoming Christians. And you have these guys. What that tells me, which is both encouraging to me, comforting to me, and humbling to me, is that God's kingdom will advance with or without us. God's kingdom will advance with or without us. As soon as you think God's kingdom will only advance with us, then we start to get into this really dangerous theology of God needs us. God needs us. I don't like to play the what if games, but here's the what if. What if Peter said, no way, God. Yeah, three visions. I don't care. I'm still not going to go talk to those Gentiles. Do you know what my friends would say? Do you know what the other Christians in the Jerusalem church would say? No, thank you. If that were to happen, not saying it would. Not saying it could, but if it were, God's okay. God's plan is bigger than Peter. God's plan is bigger than Paul. God's plan is, is bigger than the church at Jerusalem. God's resources are more. God's kingdom will advance with or without us. In some sense, that should be freeing, and not in the sense of, oh, I guess I don't need to do anything because God's going to take care of it. No. It should be freeing because we know we can move forward with faith. We can move forward boldly. And we can do that because we, we don't have to worry about whether, whether we're going to succeed or fail. All we have to worry about is to be faithful, to follow 
We need to make sure we understand that God wants to use us. God wants to use us not because he needs us, but he wants to use us because that's why he created us. When he uses us, we live according to the purpose for which we're created. It is the most fulfilling way that we can live. It's a blessing to us. You see, when we want to use people, we usually want to use people not for their benefit. Oh, we might tell them that. But honestly, a lot of times we use people what they do for us. If we understand that God doesn't need us, why else would then he want to use us? Why, we, especially would he want to use people like me? And maybe people like you who still get, get it wrong, who still can be very selfish, who still can just want to go my way or do it my way. Why? As I've said before, it's a greater display of his glory Could, could God just in an instant change everything and make it exactly the perfect kingdom that he wants it to be? Sure, he could. But the greater display of his glory is not him just snapping his fingers. But it's him using people like us. We should see it as an honor and blessing to be used, whether it's in a big or small way. We're talking about John the Baptist this morning. And John the Baptist, we get the two really important expressions of humility from John the Baptist. First of all, you have John the Baptist who's asked to do something hard and something great. He's asked to be the guy that goes before the Messiah. He's asked to, to kind of live out there in the wilderness, not be like everybody else, not get to follow the typical dreams of, you know, somebody in, you know, first century Palestine. He's asked to do something really hard, and he's asked to do something really important. And he goes, all right, and he does it. Humility. Some of us struggle with that side of humility. We're like, oh, you know, I'm just me. God can't use me. Or he can only use me in these ways. And we kind of limit them for God. But not just John the Baptist. But he, he gets the other side right too. When Jesus shows up, when the Messiah shows up and he says, that's the Lamb of God. When his own followers start to, to leave him as a, the human side, how kind of humiliating that is. He doesn't hold on to that. As his influence decreases, he says those incredible words, he must increase, I must decrease. He gets it on both sides. If it means step up, if it means 
Go beyond what you think you can do and, and know that God will be there to empower you to do it. Or whether it means step aside. Step aside. The one you've been preparing the way for is here. He gets it on both sides. It's one of the, it's one of the challenges. It's one of the struggles that we sometimes have as Christians. In, at seminary, they gave these... Um, this personality test at when we first went. And it was not shocking to find out that the vast majority of, of students who are going to seminary, they're what they call type A. You know what type A is? Like they gotta be in charge. They're the leaders. And they're, they're not really good at sharing. They're not really good at working together. And the type A of the type A, you know what they became? No offense, Brad. They became missionaries. And you know why? Because when I'm out on the mission field, it's just me and God. And I can do what I want the way that I want. And I don't have to worry about all these other people over here. If we're going to be the church, we need to understand God wants to use us. God has gifted us and given us opportunities to be used. But he doesn't need to use us. And if we have that right, we have the humility to say, okay, God, Use me how you want to use me, not the way I want to be used. And what we know from Scripture is that God wants to use us by working together. Even Paul, we often look at Paul as like, oh, he's this lone ranger Christian going out. No, he's always connected to a church. He always travels with a partner. There's only one time in all of Scripture in all of Acts, where Paul's not with, with another Christian. And that's when he's in Athens. And that's because he's waiting for them to get there. God's not going to use us all the same way. But he wants to use all of us together. Over time... What we know doesn't change is the message doesn't change. The gospel doesn't change. The truth doesn't change. The mission doesn't change to take the gospel to the world. But how that happens, it's going to change. But the fact that we're called to do this together, that doesn't change. In the middle of this section. It says, this report came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas. Barnabas again, right? We get Barnabas again, and it, he's described in a very similar way. Full of the Holy Spirit, good man, full of faith. Barnabas. And since Luke mentioned it twice, I'm going to make the same point twice. We need more Barnabases. We need more Barnabases. 
And we need to be Barnabases to each other. Notice, Barnabas is trusted by the church at Jerusalem. The church at Jerusalem was largely people had come from like a the traditional Jewish lifestyle, and, and they were still holding on to a lot of the r- religious practices, and there was nothing wrong with doing that, as long as they didn't think that it was required to be a Christian to do it. There was nothing wrong with, with staying, you know, deeply connected to their, their the traditional Jewish practices. But, you know, they were struggling, they were struggling with what to do because Gentiles weren't just trickling in one by one like they did early. They're coming in like a flood. And what they're really concerned about, which I think is a good concern, even though some of them didn't get it right exactly, what they're concerned about is that, that, that their Christianity, the gospel, is not being compromised simply to attract people. And so, as we saw with Peter talking to the church earlier, Church of Jerusalem, here they send Barnabas, and he goes to Antioch. And it tells us it's not like um, super descriptive for us. It just says he saw the grace of God. I don't know what that means, but that's what he saw. It says he saw the grace of God. You see, Barnabas wasn't just trusted by the church of Jerusalem. He's also welcomed and trusted by the church at Antioch. He was that kind of guy. And he was that way because because he had been so consistently and sincerely faithful. And it tells us that he exhorts them He exhorts them to remain faithful. But notice, just as we talked about John the Baptist, just as we talked about John the Baptist, look what it says in verse 25. Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. He gets to Antioch. There's all these new Christians. There's these other Christians that had from the persecuted church that are, that are probably there helping to provide leadership. And Barnabas kind of gets in there and he helps them. And he helps, you know, helps direct them, helps ground them. And there seems to be this, this response. It says, a great many people were added to the Lord. Barnabas could have easily said, I got this. I got this. Okay, God, I know what you were doing in my life. You were preparing me to be the megachurch pastor of, you know, of Antioch Fellowship. And I'm here. Let's do this, God. But Barnabas, he understands something. He understands, I think, first of all, his own limitations. But I think he also knows, he also knows what God's calling on Paul's life was. And instead of seeing this as an opportunity to solidify his reputation as this great leader, he says, no, no, 
This is an opportunity to help this church grow even more, but also to help fulfill this vision that, that Paul had received. To be the minister to the Gentiles. He recognizes his limitations. And the language is kind of weird. It says he went to look for Saul. Like he didn't know where he was. And it says he found him. We don't know what Saul was doing in all this time. There's some, a lot of theory, speculation. We're not sure. It's believed about 10 years have passed. But Barnabas goes. We need more Barnabases. The church at Jerusalem needed a Barnabas who would help verify that what was happening somewhere far away was the act of God. The church at Antioch needed Barnabas to be there to help them on those, those, those initial steps, but also to be humble enough and wise enough to say, I can't do this by myself. And Saul needed a Barnabas. He needed Barnabas to, to reach out to him and say, I got this church in Antioch and they need you. We need more Barnabases. And we need to be Barnabases to each other. We need to be trustworthy. It can't, it's not, Barnabas is not, he wasn't the guy that just came in all the time. He doesn't seem to be that just always, you know, said, that's, that's wonderful, that's great, Mr. Positive, Mr. Sunshine. No. He was honest, but he was honest in a way that encouraged. Later on, we're going to read about how he and Saul get in a, get in a, get in a little argument. It's not, it's not like, oh, I just go along with everybody. I just tell them what they want to know. But we need to be Barnabases to each other. We need more Barnabases in our midst. And then the last thing I want you to see is, if you look at the, the last section, you, you get this in verse 27. It talks about how this, this man named Agabus... And we, we read about Agabus a couple times, but he apparently had this, this gift of prophecy that came from God that doesn't happen all the time. We only see it like twice. But he's able to, to not only see that a famine is coming, but he's also able to see that it's going to really affect the church at Jerusalem. And in verse 29 it says, the disciples determined... So the disciples at Antioch determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. We just read over that. We don't, we don't like really understand what's going on there. We just read over that. Think about this. Just a few years earlier, and maybe for some of them still in that moment, Traditional Jewish Christians couldn't stand to be in the same house with Gentile Christians. Gentile Christians 
Some of them had been these, these God-fearers that would go to the synagogues and, and, and want to worship God and learn the scriptures, but they knew they would never be accepted simply because of their ethnicity. Understand what's happening here. These Christians in Jerusalem, they're going to be starving soon. The Christians that they really didn't want to be around are going to send them food. They're going to send them money. And isn't it just so God to make it that issue? Remember when the Jerusalem Christians were upset with Peter? They didn't say like, Peter, why did you baptize them? They said, why did you eat with them? They wanted to focus on the food thing. So God goes, okay, I'll do that too. You're now going to have food that comes from those Gentiles that you think are unclean. It's this incredible miracle that happens in the church. It's this miracle of loving and being loved by those who used to hate you. Loving and being loved by those who used to hate you. And a lot of us, we've never experienced this. We haven't experienced this because, as I've said before, in our culture, we don't usually have to deal with our enemies every day. But let me tell you something. If you haven't been paying attention, if you haven't been paying attention, there's more and more people in our culture, in American society, who hate Christians. Oh, not just like, oh, they got their thing, they can... No, they hate Christians. I'm not going to tell you I have a percentage. I'm not going to tell you it's the majority. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying in our society, there are people who hate Christians. They hate what we stand for. Many of them are going to blame Christians for what the Supreme Court did this week with regards to abortion. Understand, if you're pro-life, in many people's minds in this society, you hate women. Do you understand that? Your enemies, they're starting to identify themselves more and more. And don't ever expect me to say, well, let's get together and find out how to fight back and get them. No, you know what I'm going to tell you? I'm going to tell you the same thing that the Scripture says. How do we love them? How do we love them? How do we share the gospel? The more angry they get, the more bold they feel, how do we love them? And we know loving them is not simply going, yeah, 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 okay, that's so nice. You have those strong beliefs. Or I agree with you, or I'm going to go along with you. No, that's not love. How do we love? 
I have a feeling this is just going to continue in our culture, in our society. More and more, there's going to be people emboldened. But here we see this, the beauty, not the ugly. We see the beauty of what happens when, when Jesus gets a hold of people's lives, when the gospel transforms us, when the Holy Spirit indwells us. People who used to hate each other now are taking care of one another and they're doing it out of love. And God helps. This is where the vision comes in. Agabus helps. And when this vision, when he has this vision of what's going to happen, this great famine, it gives, I think, the disciples time, not just to prepare to gather, but it also gives them time to really, you know, pray about it, think about it, talk about it. Some of them kind of work through it like, eh, aren't these the people that don't like us? Aren't these the people that sent Barnabas to check up on us? Aren't they the ones that want us to get circumcised? Do we really love these people? Yeah, we do. We do. Make no mistake, it doesn't always work this way. Loving your enemies, loving your enemies with the gospel doesn't always work with them responding. But that's not why we do it. We don't share the gospel because we know 100% of the time we share the gospel, people are going to respond. If that were the case, we'd always share the gospel. We don't love to be loved. We don't love because someday down the line, those people who, who we're loving are going to come back and help us. No, we don't do that for those reasons. But it's beautiful and wonderful when it does happen. This reminds me of Matthew chapter 25 where the judgment of the sheep and the goats is there. And, and you know, you might not know it by that name, but it's where Jesus, he, he, he's, he tells this long story, and I'm just going to shorten it for you, where basically he says, he, he says, if you have done this for the least of these, my brothers. He had, he had talked about how, you know, he had been fed when he was hungry. And how he had been given clothing when he was naked. And how he had been visited while he was in prison. And in the story, the disciples are like, when did that happen? And Jesus said, when you've done it to the least of these, my brothers. Jesus was, was saying, this is one of the marks of my church. Not that we love everybody out there. Yes, we should love everybody out there. But that God brings us together that we love each other. We meet each other's needs in this church. If our church is perfect, then there is no one in this church whose needs are not being met. Not just the needs we know about. Because some of you are really good at Hiding your needs. You don't want to tell anybody. We have to find out by secret and then surprise you. You make it hard, okay? Some of you have no problem. You have t-shirts with your needs written on it. You know, God loves all kinds, okay? <laughs> but I'm just telling you, we are called to meet each other's needs. 
Jesus makes it so important in Matthew 25 that, that he says if we fail at that, we failed at being his followers. From the beginning of Acts, what is God doing? God's bringing together people. Yes, it's, there's the traditional Jewish people that he's bringing together. There's the Ethiopian eunuch. There's Cornelius and, and his friends and families. There's the Samaritans, the Hellenists, the Gentiles, the Pharisees, the widows, the tax collectors, the slaves, the peasants. And we're even going to read about the, the leading women of the city. Bringing them all together. Uniting them as one body in Christ. God's still in that business. The church should still be that. Oh, we may not have the issues of traditional Jewish, Gentile conflict. We have our own. But God wants to bring together the young and the old, the educated, the uneducated, the new Christian, the mature Christian. He even brings together all of us who are struggling with, we just have different struggles, different sins that we struggle with. Some might be struggling with sexual sins. Some might be struggling with materialism. Some might be struggling with anger. Some might be struggling with pride. Some might be struggling with just feeling inferior all the time. And God doesn't say, hey, I can, uh, I can only unite you when, when you guys are all perfect. Then I can unite you. He goes, no. You can be united by my spirit. We're at different places in our journey. But God can unite us if we're all moving in the same direction to becoming more like Christ. We love our enemies with the gospel. And the gospel helps us to love each other as a display of who God is and what he promises to do through Jesus Christ.